Welcome to the Meant for Good podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Holbrook, and I believe that each of us have been given gifts, dreams, skills, and ideas that we're meant to share with each other. My goal is to share stories that challenge and inspire you and I to connect with people around us because we are meant for good. Welcome back. I'm Hannah Holbrook, and this is part two of an interview with Shane Roberts, a fantastic musician, thinker, teacher, theologian, a man who has spent a lot of his life studying, putting knowledge into practice, and using it to help others. Please check out episode one if you haven't yet, and otherwise, I hope you enjoy episode two. These questions that you ask your students that help them get to the real questions of their lives... I appreciate your focus on contextualization and understanding who we are in relationship to God because that helps us understand our purpose. And if we understand that, that we're here to serve him, that he's a holy God, that we need him, that we need Jesus to save us from our sins, and that we need to turn to him so we can become more like him and so that we can be perfect as he is perfect, holy as he is holy, that we need to be connected to him. He's the vine and we're the branches. And from that place of abiding in his love and accepting his grace, then we can go about his business on earth. And if we don't do that, if we don't contextualize ourselves and understand our need for him and our purpose and service to him, then we're just going to live for ourselves and we're going to build our own little kingdoms and everything you've been talking about with the ego and the ways that we try to defend ourselves, that we end up hurting other people and we blind ourselves to the ways that we do that so we can continue to build our own little kingdoms. These are all things that you have been helping me see over the past couple of years. And something that has just clicked for me recently is that We have to own these deeper desires of our hearts, whether they are right or wrong. And we have to look at that and be honest about it. And when you were saying that you would tell God, I'm going to choose this thing over you right now, like you were that in touch with yourself. You were honest about your motives and your actions, which a lot of us don't think about. And we go on autopilot and we do what suits us best. Ultimately, whether we recognize that's why we're doing it or not, that we think it's the best thing for us and that's why we do it. Part of how I came to those realizations, it's through him. I wouldn't have thought to create a system like that for myself if I didn't have perfection staring me in the face in the mirror. And by that, I mean not my reflection in the mirror, but seeing him and my overlay and how paltry it was compared to him. So when I said it takes humility and supplication and submission to God, that's our rightful place. The world sees that as weakness. But when you're in bondage to sin, that is weakness. A perfected being that loves you and wants the best for you cannot not know that its way is the best way for you. Mm -hmm. So what God has for us is what we should choose. Yeah. And that leads one to start asking important questions. How do I stack up? What's the truth of my life? God, will you help me see the truth? People will say, if I have no faith... How can I pray to get faith? And we'll find that they have a little faith. (laughs) You have to have it to pray. Right. It's a tiny little bit, though. So this is a person that thinks they have none. And I'll talk to them for a little bit and we'll find they have a tiny little bit in there. And I'll say, that's what you need. Yeah. And next thing you know, three years later, that person's on fire with faith. And because God grew that little mustard seed of faith. (laughs) Yes. And... They grow in power and in knowledge in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing to see. Amen. But James says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but if you're praying without 
faith. Don't expect anything to happen because it's not going to. But then we know that, oh, there's a prayer in Scripture. A person prays for faith because they have little faith. And that's a great place to start. I love that. You know, he'll work with us from where we're at. If he died for us before we came to him, what do you have to worry about after you accept him? See, that type of freedom is powerful. And the problem is that the church has this freedom, but they don't live in it. They don't live like they understand it. They don't actualize it. And because of that, his true church is rendering themselves less effective. Yeah, I agree. David said, search me. Oh, God, know my heart. Convict me if there's anything in me that's not pleasing to you. And that's that same thing that you do when you search yourself to that degree and are that honest. That's it. And I'm praying for the ability to be as honest as is possible. And it's another thing that I teach my students. Your no is not a real no. You're not really refusing sin. It's an act. It's a play thing that you do to make yourself feel better about yourself. Because when you really say no, you will follow through with that no. So what benefit is this discussion to someone or that statement to someone if their no doesn't mean no? If they'll take a moment and reflect on that, they'll start to gain the knowledge that they need to get out of their problem. Now, they probably truthfully already know this. They already know that about themselves. But they've, quote unquote, blinded themselves again to it. Blind yourself to what you've already seen and what you already know is true. So maybe... forget it. Yeah, maybe our discussion is just a reminder to them. Maybe God... Well, there's no maybe on this one, but let's say if we're being good vessels for the Lord, then those that hear this, it'll be the right time for them to hear it. They'll know that these little things that we're saying that are truths, they'll accept them and their lives will change. You know, and that was God providing for them. Amen. That's another thing I really appreciated about your teaching and something that's helped me a lot in the past couple of years. I would read these things in the Bible, but not know how to apply them to my life, or I'd have a very superficial understanding of what they meant. And a lot of what you've been talking about is that application, understanding the thing well enough to let the knowledge of it turn into wisdom through application. And there are several ways that you've talked about that today. And what we were just talking about with honesty, that's another example of that, of living in the light and walking in the light. And Jesus did that. And this was hitting me hard when you were talking about that earlier, that he, in one of the most difficult moments for him, when he's sitting there asking God, is there another way? Do I have to go through with this and die on the cross? Because I'll do it. But is there another way? But let your will be done, not mine. There's your critical statement. Let your will be done, Lord. Prosukamai, like to pray to God, to pray toward his infinite will and to submit yourself to it. And we see Jesus in the garden there. And one part of scripture, he talks about he's sweating blood. He knows what's coming. He knows how horrible it's going to be. And that he's going to have to endure it. And so he prays to God. But at no point does he do anything wrong or that would usurp God or push him around in some prideful sense. He's a perfect example in that because he's saying, if this cup can pass from me, then how would that happen? How can that be? And if not, then your will be done. Yeah. If the church prayed that every day, all of us, I can't help but think we would be a lot more powerful in Christ. Mm-hmm. In that sense, I mean, in other words, it hones you. You're not worried about Netflix or you're not worried about that 25 minutes you want to spend with somebody. When you, you get the long game mindset of Christianity, it's not about your life here, although your life here is critically important. But if you think about the eternal mindset with God, how will you run this race of 85 or 90 years? How does that change things? Yeah. So we see in Christ this perfect way of dealing with extreme hardship. 
If you can help me, Lord, help me. But your will only, Lord. Yeah. And he's honest in his experience. Very stressful situation. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't try to hide that. Like you were saying, he's not prideful about it. He's not cowardly about it by any means. That's right. You know, he's looking at the situation honestly and asking God an honest question. And he's also resolved in his heart that he's going to do God's will no matter what. Yeah, he didn't ask it from a bad place. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How important is that? Yeah, I love it. You talk about picking up our cross each day and... Jesus says, if you obey my commandments, you're my friends. And then he says, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Which he did. Yeah. And then you talk about picking up your cross each day. It's a way that we're meant to live, obeying his commandments and laying down our desires for his. And to do that, we need to be honest about what our desires are. So I guess the thing that I really wanted to get at in all of this is I love that you do the work you do because I think my generation is prone to blinding ourselves to the things that we do, why we do these things, and what we really want because ultimately we're very self-consumed and we don't want to see that. And it's what you said earlier too that we idolize ourselves in our own ways. We want what we want and we don't want to be honest about what we want so that we can get it in a way that makes us feel okay about it and even good about it. Yeah, that's right. And all human generations have had this problem. I do agree with you, though, that your generation has it. Millennials, elder and younger millennials had a lot of things removed from their educational processes and emotional-based education took over. Hey guys, I have a couple short notes here, so we're going to step outside this interview for a few minutes. But Shane wanted to explain a little bit about what has happened in the education system, and this is something that we'll discuss more in depth in a future episode, but for now, he has kindly recorded some information that will enhance this section of the podcast, and I'm going to play that for you shortly. And then after that, we'll resume our interview. So here's what you need to know. There has been less time allotted to the trivium and quadrivium-based subject material, trivium being grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and quadrivium being arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Shane says that these subjects are essential for developing healthy, critical, and creative thinking skills. And in place of the trivium and quadrivium, an emotional-based curriculum was rolled out. And I'm going to let Shane take it from here. This change brought about a focus on one's inner emotional life, but not in a healthy and functional way. Otherwise, there would have been no change, as the philosophical nature of the trivium and the quadrivium would have been more than enough to help developing minds engage in their reality critically and effectively. The focus of the emotional-based curriculum is that's a huge topic and I think we're going to probably dedicate an an episode to it in the future. So for now, what I hope to communicate is the fact that this rollout of self-focused, ideologically materialistic, solipsistic content was not used to help the youth better understand their emotions as it was touted, but was instead used to help program them in ways that open them to the types of ideologically manipulative viewpoints that engendered a self-consumed processing of reality, such that it rendered them at one time both enmeshed in their own pre-programmed viewpoint, which was errantly centered around the I and its right to complete comfort at all times, as well as creating a doctrine of fragility and emotional intolerance. It further stripped the student of much-needed exposure to the types of content that would foster greater individualistic thinking skills, chiefly because there's only so much time allotted for a school day. This generated great trouble in both emotional processing, which is clear when one looks at the instability of this generation from the emotional perspective, as well as the significant loss of logical processing and reasoning abilities that would have helped them defend against the types of logically errant doctrines that were being pushed upon them. 
All right, that's the end of our notes. Let's get back to this interview in three, two, one, meow. That's harmed the development of the usage of language. It's impoverished the last generations, in my opinion, in an extreme way. And in adulthood, they have to come out of this and they're going to have to re-educate themselves. They're going to have to learn to use the English language. And I don't want you to think that I'm saying that from on high. What I mean by that is if you go back and you read writings from the 1800s or if you look at letters written between family members from the 1800s, you're going to be stunned by how literate people were throughout society and how well they could articulate themselves. And as a teacher, I've watched the last 30 years of students change significantly in their ability to articulate thoughts. Now, that's not good. It's to the negative, these changes I'm speaking about, and they don't have to stay that way their whole lives. That's something they need to hear because they're coming under a lot of fire for not being able to articulate themselves or not present cogent, logical arguments. And I just want to stress a couple things about that. Number one, they were trained not to be able to do it. It's one thing to not learn your training. It's another to learn what you were taught and to be taught a load of gobbledygook. Yeah. Be taught how to frame the entire world through an emotional lens and have no personal responsibility for anything. Mm -hmm. You think that's harsh, but that's actually what's happened. And we have the evidence of that. And I would say even the proof of it over the last 10 years. And that has filtered its way into the church as well. Because you have Christians now that believe in Christ and that love him, but they have these problems. And what's the church doing to help that? There should be re-education in the church. Because how well is someone going to exegete the Bible when they have a hard time reading in general? How does that translate? Very poorly. Now, the other thing is that the way that people have been engendered to not think is also a way that they've been engendered to think. So what is that engendering? What's the purpose of that? And what's the outcome of that? The outcome is that those people are some of the most controllable people that have ever been on the planet Earth. And I can talk at length about this and why this happened and through what pathways. And the point being that if you find yourself in this situation and you're coming under fire for it, just understand that you're capable of getting yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be fun if your egos and defensiveness is super high and you're processing everything through an emotional lens. I can speak to that from experience. <laughs> yeah. So that might be a good time for you to address the emotional process you had of engaging with my logical processes that I teach. What was that like for you? Yeah. Emotionally, I felt like a toddler and I definitely had moments where I wanted you to think for me and feed me the answers. Right. And this is another thing I wanted to touch on earlier that I love that you, I love this now. I love that you ask questions <laughs> to now help. Now is the operative word there. <laughs> At the time I hated this and I raged about it. Which was shocking to me because I didn't know that I had rage. <laughs> I did not think I was an angry person. <laughs> I tend to yeah. bring that out in some people. <laughs> you just helped me discover that part of myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a rage advocate. <laughs> I help people advocate for their rage. <laughs> well, if it's righteous anger, then more power to you. <laughs> In my case, it was yeah, not. not. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I discovered so much in that process that I'd actually had some righteous anger in that place that I hadn't discovered because I wouldn't allow myself to be angry about things because I always had this manipulative way that I would eventually get to what I wanted through compliance. But you saw through that and instead of giving into it, you just said, no, go think about this, go figure it out, come to your own conclusions. And you really encouraged me to think for myself. And I was so used to outsourcing my thinking yes. and wanted you to do it for me that, yeah, I was angry and my uh, tactics of being nice didn't work. It didn't get me what I wanted. And I eventually 
for the most part, accepted that you know what you're doing here and I need to listen and also I can't control you. So I may as well just listen (laughs) and try this thinking business. So initially, I definitely had an emotional response to that and was a little brat. And now I really appreciate it because practicing that a little bit, thinking through things that I didn't understand, applying some of the thinking tools that you taught me, it helped me flex that muscle a little bit. And then it got a little easier the next time something was difficult and I didn't understand it and you encouraged me to go work on it. I still was like, and then I'd work through it and then we'd both be excited. Oh, we got to the answer and the answer meant more to me. And you told me it would if I discovered it for myself instead of having it go in one ear and out the other when you tell me. Which is what happens the overwhelming percentage of the time that I tell anyone an answer. It goes in one ear and out the other. And they'll even come back and claim I've never told them any answers. So my teaching methodology is to give some answers and to help lead people into thinking better. So if it's not going to lead you into thinking better, you're probably not going to receive it from me. And because I see that as enabling you, and I'm not going to enable you, I'm going to, to the best of my ability, enhance you in the image of Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you're studying with me, which quite a few people are not Christian to study with me, I'm going to enhance you in the deepest truth-based philosophies that I can find, do the best that we can with where we're at. In other words, so I'm optimizing all the time. And if you love truth or if you want to improve and if you're willing to look at yourself honestly, that'll be joyous. Hmm. And if you're not and you just want an A and you want to manipulate and control and get through a system like you have all the other systems, which is a whole other topic, which goes back to the educational system we were just talking about. But you kind of flow through things and you don't realize that they have been making higher grades easier to obtain, and they've been decreasing the reading levels systematically over time so that your generation thinks they're operating on the level that prior generations had, but they're clearly not. And then you come under fire when you get out in the workforce or you have to make a living, and it can be humiliating and scary. It's like, wait a minute, am I this part behind? And the truth is, yes, you bloody well are. And now you got to do something about it. You can't just sit and go, oh, man, I got screwed over in the educational system. Your job is to accept it if it's true and fix it. So what you're talking about, all that plays a part. But that rage that you experienced and that anger when I wouldn't complete something for you, if I remember correctly, you thought I was trapping you a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of sadistically enjoying it. And then what happened when you did achieve something? Did you receive the response of a sadist or was I overjoyed for you? You were overjoyed for me. Yeah. That's part of what helps people. The truth is that a lot of people will not submit to the teaching. Mm-hmm. I don't ask for them to submit to me because that is not the way to go. Submit to Christ, right? Yeah. But they should submit to wise counsel and teaching. Mm-hmm. And so many people just decide to manipulate and control me and to try and get an outcome-based desire to happen. Yeah. That they miss all the content. Mm-hmm. And they never get what they want from me. And they leave angry, I mean, really angry at me a lot of times. And they see me as being unreasonable and not having any grace or compassion. And all that happened was I just refused to let them control me. And that's enough for them to villainize me to the nth degree. I mean, I've had people try to destroy my livelihood, reputation, get me fired from advisory positions and jobs, all kinds of things, all because their little precious egos got challenged. So you can say, well, that's dangerous. Maybe you should quit doing the work or whatever. No, no, won't do it. As a matter of fact, you'll have to kill me to stop me. And if you kill me, it probably won't stop me because I serve Christ. And if you can't handle the truth, okay, I'm not going to hate you over that. I'm not going to try and get your job taken from you. I'm not going to try and do these things. So why do you want to do that to me? How could that illustrate any better the opposition of the world to the opposition of the church? And Christ says these things are going to happen to us. 
Now, I don't like it. I don't relish in it at all. I don't feed off the opposition, nor do I need it. It usually makes me sad. It's mostly my experience because that's a soul. And I don't want to see that soul refuse simple things like you can do better. Yeah. You can learn more. Good job on this. Now let's get to this part. Let's go deeper here. That's what people are getting furious about. Think about this. They're furious because I'm encouraging them into depth. That is not healthy. And to paint you as the villain in that way. I've had people in my life that I outsourced my thinking to, and they took advantage of that. And they did control me. I allowed it in some of those instances. But there are a lot of people that want to be in that kind of position. And they ultimately want to duplicate themselves in other people if they can. It's a narcissistic thing. They want to create many me's. I've seen this with so many teachers. If you see that, I would advise you to seriously consider leaving. It doesn't mean that that person may not still have things that are good and they may be struggling with that. So you want to take each case on its own merit. But that creating a duplicate of yourself in people, that has nothing to do with Christ-like teaching at all. So in your situation, you're actually teaching people to think for themselves and to go to Christ and see how their decisions and their motivations align with Christ, not you. And that's such an important distinction. And I love that about you. And I love that about the work you do. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, when I was angry, I wanted you to just tell me the answers so I could just check the boxes or get the A or whatever. And I was used to that. To take ownership of my thoughts and my actions, it's something I'm ever endeavoring to do because there are a lot of things that I have hidden from myself to live the kind of passive life that I have to avoid conflict in my life. And so I really appreciate that about you, that you love people, you want them to step into the fullness of what God's called them into and to conform to his image, not yours. You're there to help them ask these important questions, get to their hearts, be honest about what's in there and get that stuff to align with Christ so that they can get about his business and serve him and love him and live good lives down here. So I'm sorry that you're treated the way that you are. And I know that you bring your all to everything that you do and you really care for people and want the best for them. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. You know, scripture says to do what you do with all your might. And there's, of course, more to that scripture, but I've taken that very seriously in my life. And I'm glad I have. Everything that he has for us is better than what we would have for ourselves. And the fact that taking something that he says like that so seriously can yield such fruit. And I don't want this to sound like I'm bragging. I'm talking about the fruit has been what he's yielded to me through it. I've learned to study. I've learned the value of intense work. I've learned what it means to accomplish things and to know that without him, you're not getting anywhere. So what it means to be a vessel rather than to be like a Superman, Mm -hmm. what it means to be submitted and to develop humility while you're accomplishing things that are difficult. The world with accomplishments, they want to puff themselves up. And that doesn't mean a Christian can't feel good about accomplishing something. Jesus gives us things to do, and he's happy for us when we achieve them. So, of course, we can be happy, but we don't take that into arrogance. It's very important. So if you follow what he teaches, you'll do your best. And what I find is that I kept having deeper levels of best, and I kept going to those levels and not running from them. And I haven't stopped yet. And I don't want to stop because his correction I see is a beautiful thing. And not only just his correction, but his encouragement. He doesn't just correct us. He corrects us because he loves us and he encourages us because he loves us. So I don't know where that place is of stopping. And I used to know that. And now I don't. And that may be a little 
difficult for people to grasp. I probably could have explained that better. But what I'm saying is I have a sense that this continues and that there is no A or anything that you should even care about. You should have an intellectual burning desire to know him and his creation. And I think if you don't have that, you should start looking for how to acquire it. Because I think it's probably been snuffed out of you. I think you had it when you were little. Well, you see this all the time. So I got in touch with that. I was blessed to have good mentors and good teachers throughout my life. And I sought them out. And against great odds of financial trouble, what I would say is financial limitations, huge financial limitations. And yet I was always able somehow to make it to that person, to study with them, to grow. And it caused me to cherish those things so profoundly. And I always had a sense of him in that and that he was providing in that. And that drove me. So not only is my desire for him part of what drives me, and by that I mean the universe. I love science. I love so many things that you know I'm invested in the lifelong study of. It's not just the physical or just the spiritual. It's the sense of being compelled toward the infinite and knowing because of him, you're going to keep going. He's got more for us than we can understand. That I can't tell you I know, but I believe. I can't get my head around what he does. But one day it will all be revealed. We see is but through a glass darkly here. But I want to press my face up against the glasses hard as I can see as far as I can. And if I think that's what he wants, and I do, and I know that that pleases him, and it's just one more way that I can connect with him in that sort of deeper, more meaningful world. He likes us to be active. He likes us to rest when we need to rest. He likes us to go when we need to go. He directs us towards these things many times in Scripture. And I think that his people need to understand that they're far more tough and resilient than they think they are. I mean, so much more so that it takes me seven to eight years to get some of my students to grasp what I'm talking about here in a way that I can understand they're starting to really get it. And what manifests with them at that point is they're no longer afraid of going after difficult things. They're no longer afraid of mastering their instruments, for instance, because I teach music and guitar and improvisation, or if it's literature or knowledge of Western civilization, like the great books, for instance, or something like that. People will look at that and go, oh, I'll never be able to read that. It's like, no, you can read that in 2.5 years if you want to do a program with me about it. But most of the time it terrifies them and they either don't want to do it or they'll back out of it. And I think like in 1800, would that have happened if somebody wanted to read the great books with you, alongside you, and teach you about them? Would you say no? And why is that happening now? I can't tell you that that's a perfect way to think about it, but I often think about that because I've read throughout the centuries of humanity. I've read extensively throughout my life, and the erudite nature of much of the writings of the 1800s was radically different than what we see nowadays. Mm -hmm. So it's clear that those people were involved, that they quote from these books. They understand much of the material accurately. Now, some of those books, have, of course, hadn't been written at that time. But generally speaking, what I'm trying to get to is why would anybody deny something like that? Why would you not take every class on the scripture that you could get your hands on? Mm -hmm. If it looks like it's even going to be taught by anybody that's good, if you think there's good in it, why would you not go for it? And then I'll hear this litany of excuses, and then I'll ask people to assess what they've done over the last months or whatever. I have my students keep records, and they'll have spent enough time watching Netflix that they could have accomplished you don't even want to know what they could have accomplished and still had time to watch Netflix. So maybe you can speak to that because you used to manage time very differently. I remember inviting you into a thread that I was running that would require you to study a little bit every day. 
and you had quite the allergic reaction to that at one point. I'm not trying to out you on your own podcast, but I think it could be interesting because you could describe to people what that felt like. And now you're studying probably an order of magnitude of six to eight times more daily. And it feels like not like a big deal to you. People need to know they can grow in that and that it doesn't feel the same as their emotions tell them it will in the beginning. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think initially I had this idea that I had to understand everything perfectly. And so there was a lot of information being shared in this thread. And some of it was very time consuming to watch or to read. Can you, so quali keep, can you qualify time consuming so people have an idea about? Well, some of those videos were 20 minutes long. Some of them were an hour long. There was a lot being shared at that time. That adds up. If there are like 10 of those in the thread, that could be a day's worth of study right there just in that. Mm -hmm. At the time, there was a lot being shared. I think there's less being shared in that thread now. But I also have learned to manage my time better so I can be listening to something like that while I'm doing the dishes or driving. I can fold time as you do, do more yes. than one thing at once. So I'm still intaking the information. Or toggle really quickly. Yep. I'm not trying to understand everything perfectly like I was at the time. And I know that I have more to learn about understanding things and taking them apart. So I've just accepted that this is where I'm at right now. So when you were trying to understand everything perfectly, was your output and the level of your understanding beneath what it is now or above what it is now? I think it was beneath. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely beneath. <laughs> and that's probably because it was ego driven. Like I wanted to look like I understood everything. So I was trying to understand everything at a perfect level. And then I think because my ego was involved, I was making the work harder to do because I had some emotional stuff I was bringing into it that just made it a lot harder than it needed to be. And it made it more time consuming. And that's yeah. something I can say overall that when my ego gets involved, there's often fear of what other people are going to think of me. And I bring that into the work I'm doing. And then that slows down the process. Then it takes longer. Then I don't get as much done. I don't retain as much. Yeah, that's right. So, that's so right. I'd say that was definitely part of that. So would you say that stepping into the higher levels of commitment forced you into learning what you just spoke about and overcoming some of that? that you would not have overcome it had you stayed in the position of, quote, I'm doing everything perfectly, unquote, while actually hiding from commitment? Yep. Do you think what I just said is accurate, though? Do you think it's an accurate description? Yeah, the hiding was, I guess, a facade, the facade of yeah. perfection. That's right. That's right. So I remember your response being, initially just anti-committal because you were worried about time. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And I don't necessarily read every single article that's shared on there. I at least try to click on it and skim it or look at the headlines. I at least try to keep up with what's happening in the thread. And the more that I am exposed to the material, the more familiar it becomes. And so there is a storyline and an understanding of what's being shared that has developed that I didn't have before. So I guess I have a context for what's shared in the thread that's also helping me understand some of these things more quickly than when I first joined the thread. Yeah. Does exposure once a week work better than exposure every day? Nope. <laughs> I know that from practicing too. Yeah, I you teach. didn't build your piano playing that way, did you? Exactly. I tell my students this, it's better to practice 15 minutes a day than just an hour or two on the weekend. They're going to get more out of that. Yeah. And it's better to practice eight hours a day than 15 minutes a day. True that. Yeah. So what do you want people to know about what you're learning from this process? I've had the desire for comfort at such a level that I would really limit myself in pretty much every area. There are a couple areas where I've let myself try some things and take some risks. And partially because those examples were set for me. I've taken some risks in music because I had 
people in my life that did that or having my own business. But these were examples that were set for me. So I wasn't concerned about failing in those areas because I saw someone else do it. Even with that, there's a limit to where I've gone in those things. And so there's a certain level of risk that I haven't taken in those areas. Like I took the level of risk that I figured would get me to a place I wanted to be, but I didn't think beyond that because I didn't watch someone else journey beyond that point. So I would say there are a lot of areas of potential in my life that I hadn't considered that I wouldn't even dream of touching on. That you are achieving in right now, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And studying with you, you would challenge me even in not telling me the answer to something, not just spoon feeding me things. I had to take a little risk to think and put my answer out there instead of your answer. That was a meaningful risk for me. And it takes vulnerability to do something like that. And so I've discovered that, wow, I am very cowardly. I make a lot of fear-based decisions. And that goes back to the motivation of the heart, you know, that there's a lot of selfishness there and wanting to protect myself. And that's why I don't take these risks. That's why I don't develop in these other areas. So as I've been seeing that, as we've been working together and you've challenged me in a lot of areas and it's been very helpful because now I'm seeing, oh, I'm afraid here or I haven't seen someone else do this and this is new territory. And well, yet again, I'm afraid because that's scary. It's out of my comfort zone. And also taking some risks and being willing to fail. And sometimes I do. And then sometimes what I put out there actually lands. And both of those things can teach me something. If I fail, then I can do it differently next time. And maybe next time it'll work. So in some ways, I'm accepting that that is a part of reality. That's a part of life. That's part of what we're meant to do. And that I'm not meant to live in this comfortable little place where everything's familiar and I can control it and I can keep everything all peaceful and nice. And right. <laughs> well, in that sense, comfort is a constrainer. It's a yeah. limiter. And yeah. I have a logical hierarchy and it goes like this. Success is preferable to failure. Failure is preferable to doing nothing. And then the hierarchy builds out. If I fail, what I learn from my failure needs to be turned into success. Mm-hmm. If that fails, what I learn from that needs to be turned into success. So I'm constantly moving toward success is preferable. And we're not talking about finances here. We're talking about the spiritual world, understanding scripture. You can go through different ways of understanding scripture and Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or no-trib? What is that like? And how do you understand that? And how do you not just take what people teach, but test what they teach and figure out what the situation is? Mm -hmm. And you can't always have someone that's ahead of you down the path. Sometimes you have to lead. And that model you're talking about there is exclusively a follow model. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm concerned about millennials and Gen Z. I know there are people born in those generations that will lead, but I would like to see everyone in that generation understand the importance of needing to take paths that are not trodden, that they need to do that and they need to fail. And I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, yeah, you should just fail. No, you should succeed. But failure is preferable to doing nothing. Yeah. Another way to say that is doing nothing is the ultimate failure. Yeah. What are the various allegories throughout history? I could think of a bunch of them right now, but where the hero gets a fire, right? And they're going to fight something and they go out and they're going to fight this evil and they're going to take it over. And somewhere along the line, this really comfortable environment gets delivered to them whether it's the island of Calypso or whatever, it's a pleasure-based thing, and then the person can stay there, and they can be happy. And that brings us to something really important. Happiness is not the goal. If happiness is your goal, you're in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. 
depth, meaning, purpose. Happiness will come to you through those things, through fulfilling those things. But if you seek happiness as an end point, not only will you be miserable a lot, but you'll get it confused with comfort and other things, and it will end up taking over your life and talk about being worried about time. It'll eat all your time up. So that's another form of poverty to outsource your thinking and to allow yourself to be placed into a position of inactivity. And the thing to remember is your inactivity will not look like inactivity to you in most cases. It'll look like a quasi-activity. You may even be convincing yourself you're moving forward. Yeah. And that's very, very dangerous. So you should have some risk on the table. You should have some skin in the game. You should be in the game. You should be learning continually. There are no excuses. I've heard everything. You name it, all the years of my teaching. And I've seen a man complain about his finger hurting to a man who didn't have that finger. It's just surprising things happen. Let's just put it that way. And what I want people to hear from this is you may have bad circumstances, horrific circumstances. I've taught a lot of people that have trauma that is legendary and they got up and got moving. Mm -hmm. You can too, no matter where you're at. You can too. I came from a lot of poverty, financial poverty, and making a living as a musician is very difficult. And I made decisions to pursue things in life, and I stuck to those things. And I didn't let lack of money or presence of money eventually pull me away from that. And you don't have to either. So my hope in asking you that question was that people would hear in your answer that you had a misapprehension of what time was and what comfort was and what need of those things was and that you're way more capable now because you redefine those to more accurate definitions in reality. Because what I see is I remember watching, let's just say, a theologian last night with you who made six logical errors within about 30 minutes and you caught all six of them. Yay. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't have happened had you not done some of this work, right? Thank you. And do you you have a greater sense of accomplishment and you don't try to outsource your thinking all the time now. You insource your thinking and outsource your thinking, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we talked about this in our first attempts at this recording about outsourcing to experts and that experts are great. And experts should be used. They should also be vetted because not everybody who's supposed to be an expert is. And there's a lot of agenda-based everything you can think of and anything you can think of. Yeah. But we have to own our decisions. So the fact that we want to outsource is problematic. Wanting to, to take the burden off of you. Right. If you'll accept the burden and you'll investigate instead of just outsource intrinsically and own the decisions, you'll find you're highly capable and you can do a lot of things and you can ask great questions. And I've asked my doctors questions. They've told me that they've never heard before in their career. I've had this happen multiple times and they didn't have the answers to those questions. I had one of them get really angry at me about it and the rest of them were surprised and went and investigated on my behalf. Wow. And one told me he just didn't have the time. He was working. It was unbelievable. He was literally caring for a small town and he didn't have the time. But ultimately I had to go try and decipher things. And I was using those individuals as resources for that deciphering, as well as myself, as well as the internet, as well as the power of modern research. You can do so much now just from your yeah. couch. All of this, people fear they can't understand things. And let's say there are things you can't understand today. That's true of everybody. There's yeah. something each of us can't understand today. That does not mean you cannot understand it tomorrow. And if you'll get that 
and you get a fire for grasping those things and a fire for ownership and a fire for loving people, then you'll build yourself in ways that ultimately end up being helpful for the body of Christ. Don't just hand it all to the theologians. Don't just hand it all to your preacher or pastor or Sunday school teacher. And by the way, if they get totally ticked off, if you're asking good questions, pay attention to that. God's not afraid of any of their questions. Maybe they don't have the answer to your questions. Maybe they're great questions and they never thought of them. And you're not trying to vex them or humiliate them in some way, right? They should go try and figure it out. And they should tell you they don't know the answer right now. All these pastors trying to look like superhuman in front of their congregations when they don't know stuff. I've seen that turn into the worst theological situations. It's far worse than if they had said, you know what? I don't know. We don't have to keep going down these pathways over and over, these prideful pathways. What matters is that we get busy and busy about things that we're both inclined to and disinclined to. You need to go find things that enhance your weak areas, even if you think that you don't need them. I guarantee you somebody around you wishes you did. <laughs> Observe that. That thinks you do need it. That is correct about it, right? This has been great. Thank you so much for everything you shared and for being on the show. I just have one more question for you. And Okay. And thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. Where can people reach you? They want to get in touch or they want to take lessons? The Substack is probably the best place to reach out to me right now, currently on the internet. My Substack name is The Frontisterium. And you're also on Instagram with The Frontisterium. So people can go to Instagram.com slash The Frontisterium. That's right. I'll put both of these links in the show notes and you guys can go find Shane on there and say hi and check out his essays in the Frontisterium and the posts on Instagram as well. Yeah. And the essays are, I think there are 50 up right now that deal with the plague of misidentification. It's the misidentifying of concepts in one's life and how that results in a lot of delusional thinking and errant thinking that causes harm. A lot of the things that we've talked about today stem from that kind of misidentification. And you have some essays on biases and fallacies and heuristics and some of the things that we started this podcast with as well. So that's a great resource for you guys if you want to be learning more and thinking more about some of the things that were discussed today. Absolutely. And we've got more things coming in the future. That's right. We'll be doing more of these interviews. Thanks again so much for your time. And yeah, this was fun. Thank you for inviting me. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. And please feel free to rate this podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You can share it, leave a comment, or continue the conversation on Instagram, Facebook, or Substack. Just look us up at Mint for Good Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Linda Bilson. She provided financial support and overall encouragement for the engineering and production of today's interview. If you would like to contribute towards future episodes, you can email me, mintforgoodpodcast at gmail.com.